Welcome back to Inside the Oval, presented by Dignity Health. This week, I'm joined by 49ers Director of Premium, Suite, and SBL Sales, Nana Yah. Nana, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're welcome, Haley. Happy to be here. To start, can you tell us what your responsibilities are as the Director of Premium, Suite, and SBL Sales? It's kind of a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. Um, you know, I'd say from a you know, day to day, you know, I'm responsible for managing and overseeing a team that sells our premium. So think of our build level seats, you know, seats that we have up on our owner's patio and areas that give clients and fans access to climate control club or premium spaces in the building where you have additional perks like, you know, parking closer to the building or access to different food and beverage options. You might have shorter wait times for restrooms and uh, in addition to premium, uh, I have oversight of the team responsible for selling our suites and luxury boxes. Uh, on top of that, I hire uh, and train our staff, oversee the premium department budget, set our business plan and strategy, and then some of the probably granular details of the job that most people might not be aware of um, that I've spent a lot of my time doing lately is uh, sourcing sales leads. Right, and assisting the team with proposals and presentations and accompanying them on sales pitches. So anything that I can do to put the 49ers and the sales team in the best position to be successful driving revenue. Uh, I also work cross-departmentally with various verticals within the organization, including legal, finance, business strategy and analytics, our corporate partnerships department, you know, ticketing, suite activation, membership sales and service teams, and uh, save the best department for last. I would say that <laughs> this is the second hardest working department in the organization next to sales. And that's your department, Haley, in, in marketing. And I think for those of you listening who may not be aware uh, with what Haley does, in addition to this wonderful podcast, uh, she does an amazing job with the 49ers website, amongst several other things. Oh, well, thank you for that. That means a lot. I'm curious, from what you just said, depending on if you're selling suites or SBLs, do the sales leads and the approach have to change? Yes, I, I would say, you know, for if you're selling SBLs or season tickets, that's more of a, a, a B2C sale, which is business to consumer. And so you're selling, um, you know, consumers or fans who are using discretionary funds to buy tickets. Right. And, you know, to, to be good in that space, you really just need to know your product, uh, understand what objections may be coming at you and how to overcome them. And you need to be able to have a conversation with people uh, in addition to working your tail off and making a lot of calls, sending out a ton of emails and, and going on a lot of pitches. You know, that's primarily what you do with selling season tickets. And there are some corporations, um, you know, who do invest in, in the Niners. Uh, from a B2B, which is primarily, you know, suites and our premium, you know, you're selling to businesses and companies that are primarily focused on ROI. So, you know, what's my return on this investment from a business development and new revenue generation standpoint for my company? You know, how much do I need to sell using your service to make investing in premium or suites from a number standpoint make sense? You know, the other lens to, to look at this through, uh, especially in the, the Bay Area market, is um, ROO, which stands for what's the return on objective. And so that's when, um, you know, companies are looking to maybe use, you know, hospitality and suites for talent recruitment, right? It's very competitive in the, the Bay Area. And if you can say, hey, you know, you can utilize your box to host uh, meetings with uh, potential employees that you want to bring on. And that's a unique way to do it. Uh, you know, maybe a company's looking at re employee rewards or engagement and retention, and, or maybe they're looking to, to accomplish goals in the philanthropic space. So there's a lot of unique ways that we can share with our customers in, in the space on how to do that. And so before you even pick up the phone or draft an email or custom letter, you need to do a lot, a lot of research. Um, and that's where also knowing and understanding what you know, target industries or categories come into play. And, you know, am I reaching out to tech? 
construction, real estate, financial, professional services. You know, the, the process is the same, but the way that you go um, reach out to each individual vertical is a little bit different. And then when you do land a meeting, you need to know who the decision maker is. You know, how does the company operate? What do they do? How many employees do they have? If they're, you know, if the company is a big company, are the employees national and how many of them are local? What their goals and objectives are and how we can ultimately help by, you know, tying or attaching our products to drive their objectives uh, and goals forward. Does the, the people you reach out to or your strategy change for events? I'm thinking, uh, CFP, which was two years ago, I think. Yeah. D- does anything change when you have to go into a different event realm? Yeah, the, the strategy changes a little bit, but the process is the same, right? So, you know, we were responsible for selling, um, you know, college football playoff ticket packages in addition to suites. And so a lot of the, the ticket packages were bought by consumers. Right. And so what we did, you know, I, I called it the shake the tree approach where uh, we would send constant communication to our existing, you know, season ticket database. And every time we sent out an email or reached out um, to our base, you know, we essentially would shake the tree and sell it a ton of packages. And we did that pretty much throughout the entire uh, sales process of the course of that year. And then it was the same thing for our suites, right? We reached out to all of our existing suite partners as an opportunity of, or a benefit of being a partner. You know, we were going to go to them before we went to the general public. Uh, in addition to, you know, working through our existing base, we had a huge, uh, you know, national marketing campaign. And we were sending, you know, emails out to our database around, you know, here are the scenarios in which, you know, your team may potentially play. Um, in this game, we reach out to a lot of alumni uh, databases. We reach out to a lot of the colleges. And so the, the strategy from a marketing standpoint was a little bit different, but the process is still the same if you break it into those you know, B2C and B2B categories that I mentioned. I jumped ahead past your backstory, which is really interesting. I'm always curious how people broke into the industry, especially if, like myself, your degree doesn't necessarily reflect what you do now. Mm-hmm. I know Al always says that his first sports job was in the basement of the Philadelphia Spectrum, so very glamorous. Mm-hmm. What was your first foot in the door story? Yeah, so I, I think for me, it, it starts with uh, with college, right? I went to California Lutheran University, which is a small um, you know, Division three private school where I played football for four years and participated in, in track and field for two years. Uh, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to get my degree in and ended up taking a uh, computer visual effects class and fell in love with multimedia um, at the time. And that's what I ended up getting my degree in. And um, in college, it's all about, you know, you need to go get an internship, you know, in your space if you want to eventually work there. And I had a, a family friend who worked at Warner Brothers, and I was going to take an internship there and found out that they weren't paying, right? And um, as they broke a college student, I needed to make money. Um, so I, I had a couple of friends um, that I played football with um, and classmates that worked at a sales job selling uh, consumer products over the phone, and the company was Tony Hoffman Productions. And so basically you'd see uh, an infomercial on TV for one of the several products that we sold. And we sold, you know, probably over 20 products during my time there. And there are things like the uh, Clean Between Machine, which is a tooth product, or the Miami 48-hour diet, or um, Bell and Howe products like watches, lamps, you know, et cetera. And had a script uh, that would pop up based on which product and you'd, uh, you'd read it verbatim. And any objections you got, you had to answer strictly by the script. You couldn't really ad lib. And all of our calls are recorded. And if you messed up, uh, you, you get called into the QA department where you get a strike on your record. And, you know, so I, I learned there that I really liked talking to people and, and learned how to deal with uh, rejection on a daily basis. And I learned that I had the effort and uh, ability and grind 
to do the job at a high level over the phone. And, you know, going into kind of my senior year, I, I transitioned over to, to another company called Launchpad Communications, which was a similar sales process, but sold real estate foreclosure listings over the phone. Um, it was a, a subscription-based service. Uh, so um, I did really well there um, and was promoted to training manager where I was responsible for teaching and training uh, people. And, you know, since I was good at my job and selling, the owners basically said, you know, you're good at selling, Tell, teach people, uh, you know, what you do. Um, and so from there, as I graduated, I ended up applying for a, a job in sports with the Los Angeles Clippers. Um, you know, with the Clippers, you know, when I applied for an inside sales role, I ended up getting the in interview. And, you know, I, I remember this uh, like it was yesterday. I, I walked into the lobby on interview day and there was probably, you know, 30 or so people in the lobby. And I said, man, this is this is weird. I wonder what all these people are doing here. So. As I waded through everybody to try and get to the front desk, um, you know, and talk to the receptionist, I said, hey, you know, my name is Nana Yaw. I'm here for my interview for the sales position. And I'll never forget, you know, she gave me this this look and, and, and I was taken aback and I was like, well, what's going on here? And she says, so is everyone else. Go stand back over there at the group. And it hit me. I, I didn't know I was there for a group interview. And so I actually got to see all of my competition. Uh, you know, needless to say, I, I believe they hired, you know, eight to 10 of us that day. Um, and that kicked off my career in sports. And I had a lot of success selling, you know, season and group tickets in addition to, you know, to mini plans. And I was able to really draw the experience that I had uh, with the prior jobs that I had taken in sales in college. And in inside sales, you either grow internally or you move externally. And from there, I ended up taking a um, uh, full-time uh, account executive job with the Los Angeles Avengers. Uh, and that was a team that was owned by Casey Wasserman and, and Wasserman. Um, you know, they're a sports marketing and, and partnerships firm, and they do consulting work in addition to athlete representation. And just like previous jobs and similar to what I'd done with the Clippers, you know, sold the same type of product. Uh, it was just for an arena football team. And toward the end of my time there, uh, the arena league was um, actually getting ready to, to fold. I, I believe player si salaries are really, really high. And the owners had asked them to take a pay cut and they refused. And while that was going on, um, you know, I knew in the back of my head, I always wanted to get into one of the big fives and uh, especially the NFL. Uh, and I ended up seeing a posting with the 49ers. And, you know, I applied online and here I am 12 seasons later, um, you know, and I think, you know, quick rundown. You know, for my, my 12 years here, first year, I, I sold season and group tickets. You know, second year was season tickets, group tickets and suites all at, at Candlestick Park. Uh, and then the York family hired a consulting firm, um, Legends, of which Al Guido, who is our now president, was a VP at the time overseeing the seat license and suite sales and marketing efforts for what is now known as Levi Stadium. And I was offered an opportunity to, you know, to sell seat licenses. And this is the overarching theme that keeps coming up. You know, I, I did well and I was the top, uh, you know, seat license salesperson of a team of 30. And after a year of selling seat licenses, was promoted to selling suites. And by the time we opened Levi's, um, you know, I was promoted uh, and, you um, we had all moved back over to the Niners and I transitioned from being an individual contributor to now managing and overseeing a team. And, you know, this really got me uh, back, I think, you know, full circle to what I was doing earlier in my career before sports when I started managing and training a team back, way back at, at then at Launchpad Communications. So, I think from a timing perspective, you know, this was uh, in, in 2014, uh, where I started managing the team that sold seat licenses, suites, and all the other ancillary products that we introduced 
you know, meaning members or MENA memberships for the amazing restaurant that's attached to the stadium, our day of game rentals. You know, eventually we started a group sales team and went from manager to senior manager to now my role of director um, over the past uh, three years, you know, primarily focusing on our premium and uh, suites. This might be asking you to like choose a favorite child, but seeing as you spent some time in suites and since I've known you, you've basically worked predominantly in suites. Do you have a favorite suite area at Levi's? Um, I'd say the, uh, so I think everybody says like the sexy, uh, you know, high price owners club, you know, where we command a top dollar in the market to sell through those suites. But I really like our Black Oaks Casino Club. Uh, they're both, uh, they're on the north and south end zone and you only have about 20 uh, 20 or so suites in in each end. Um, But I like that it it doesn't get too busy. You know, it's a really nice, warm feeling. If clients show up early enough, they're handed a a glass of champagne and free-flowing hors d'oeuvres. And, you know, you really see um, a lot of of businesses and individuals just having a good time uh, whenever you walk through that space. So I would say that, you know, those are my favorite areas uh, to attend on, on game day. Makes sense. Going back to selling Levi's Stadium before it opened, what are the challenges of selling a stadium that doesn't exist yet, no one's seen, and isn't in the same area as where Candlestick was? Yeah, so, you know, we actually did a uh, an amazing job, and, and all the credit, um, you know, goes to, to Al, our president, and we created a, or built a, um, or he did, he built a $2 million preview center. And so our number one goal and focus was to get people down and, and meet them face to face. Because you got to remember, we were transitioning from a building where, you know, the highest price ticket was, you know, $279. And then we had tickets in the upper bowl that were 25 bucks, you know, $250 for the season to now selling a product where the get-in was, you know, $2,000 for a seat license, right? And, and 85 bucks a ticket all the way up to, you know, we had seat licenses uh, in, in Levi's were $250,000. So imagine, you know, working with a season ticket holder who was used to, to paying just this nominal season ticket fee. And now you're telling them, hey, you know, for a comparable area, your seat license is going to be you know, 5000 6000 12000 20000 30000 $8,000. Oh, and by the way, on top of that, you have your season ticket costs. So um, the way that our, our preview center was set up, well, we were on the tip, the, the fifth floor of the, the Tech Mart, which you can still see from the stadium to this day. And when clients and customers would come off the elevator, the first thing that they would see is the Super Bowl trophies in the window and a highlight reel. And you got to think these these season ticket holders who were coming down, they were really upset because they said, you know, I'm, I'm paying this nominal season ticket cost. Now you're asking me to, to spend this, you know, uh, you know, crazy amount of money to, to help you know, build this building. And so when they saw the Super Bowl trophies and they saw the highlight reel, it kind of put them at ease a little bit. And so we come out and we greet them in the lobby. And the first thing that they saw when we went into the preview center was a timeline tunnel. And the timeline tunnel was really about the history of what, you know, the Niners had done and all the, the, the amazing things back, you know, to the Kizar days. And so by the time you got through the timeline tunnel and we got to, you know, this huge, you know, 10 foot tall touchscreen that showed, you know, what the seats looked like from the stands and views from the seats and what the club spaces look like. And then you had this model, they were open and ready to listen, right? So our main goal was to get them into the building or into the preview center, showcase this space and then have them really have an open mind. And after you got through the model, um, then you'd circle around to the back and we had what the we called the closing room. So there's three closing rooms and once you got in the closing room, it was just you and that client and you had to you had to do what you had to do to, to make sure they, um, you know, they move forward. And I think the the education piece, um, you know, was probably the, the, the most challenging part, um, you know, because 
there's a number of reasons why you have seat licenses and you know we had to open up the building and and, and raise a lot of money and um so i i think that was the challenge and it, it taught me a lot more right I, I, a lot more um face-to-face selling learned how to to read people's you know body language picked up on buying signals and so that was a wonderful experience since that first position where you had to read kind of verbatim off of a script to that experience with the center where you had to kind of close in person, do you think the sales process is evolving or is it dependent on the company or the industry? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, the sales industry is, is 100% evolving. Um, you know, again, starting my career in sales and reading a script verbatim to, uh, you know, sitting across from, you know, an executive in and around the Bay Area where you're not, you can't read a script, right? Um, I think that, you know, now, especially in, in the, the B2B space where, you know, myself and my team primarily, you know, reside, it's, it's really about doing your homework on the front end and uh, being prepared and asking relevant questions and um, and then ultimately figuring out, you know, hey, you know, what, what are your goals and objectives as an organization, right? And then putting together a compelling presentation to say, hey, here's why, you know, we, the 49ers, Levi Stadium and Premium Hospitality can help. And I'd say that, you know, the way that we sold the building when we opened, um, you know, in 2014 and selling those years prior is completely different than the way that we sell today. Right. So then it was it was preview center. And, you know, we'd send a, we sent out a lot of emails, you know, some some print collateral. Um, but it was basically kind of the same process. Now it's like I mentioned, you know, understanding what a company's goals and objectives are and putting together a compelling proposal and presentation that's custom to that specific company and industry. Um, and it's tailored for them. And uh, that's that's where I, I would say that the biggest changes come over the past couple of years is, you know, those um, you know, organizations that really get good at tailoring a, um, a pitch to ultimately what a customer is looking to achieve. Um, those are the ones that uh, have a lot of success. And, um, you know, we, we've been able to do a phenomenal job as of late because we've gotten really good in this space. I was talking to Kiana on the last podcast about that there's a misconception that people in sports are only busy from kickoff of week one to Super Bowl, if you're lucky enough to be in it. For sales, do you guys have a busy time of year or are you guys kind of rolling year round? Yeah, no, I, I love the question and um, I'm sure everybody gets it uh, regardless of what sport you're in. And my first kind of knee jerk reaction now when I get the question like, hey, what do you do during the off season? I tell people we take three months off and we, we come back when the players uh, are in town. But so the the off season for us is is probably busier than the regular season. So in season, you're, you're still selling, um, but you're doing a lot more entertaining and you're hosting, um, you know, clients and prospective clients at games and you're meeting with your existing, you know, base to ensure that, you know, everything is going well and, and maybe you're introducing, you know, the renewal conversation or, or extensions. Um, during the off season, nobody's really paying attention to football, right? If you're a business, football is, is not on TV, there's no playoffs, there's no Super Bowl. So you have to work uh, even harder. And so, you know, during our off season, we do a lot of, you know, reevaluating all the things that worked well for us, um, you know, the, the previous year, uh, put together our, um, you know, business plan and strategy, and then we just go and, and execute. And my favorite thing about putting together business plans, and I've been doing this for a while now, is incorporating the feedback from the staff. Right. You can't put together a good business plan unless you incorporate the feedback from those who are you're asking to actually go execute the plan. And so when I can show them, hey, here are the you know, three or four ideas that you guys introduced um, that I included in this past year's and the success that we had, I think you get a little bit more buy in and they're, they're a lot more excited about going out and, and, and executing. And so um, 
a lot, a lot, a lot of meetings happen during the off season. Um, a lot of creative new ideas that we introduce and concepts to the market are, are going on during the off season. So in, in my opinion, we're busier during the off season than we actually are in season. Speaking of strategy, this isn't going to be news to anyone. Unfortunately, the 49ers didn't have fans at Levi Stadium in 2020. Looking forward, we have a vaccine. Levi Stadium is now open as a vaccination site. This might be premature, but have you guys started thinking about scenarios for a return to fans on game day? Yes, it's a, a great question. And man, we've had countless sessions, right? And talked through so many different scenarios, right? Fans versus no fans and, you know, scenarios that we plan throughout the year. It's it you know it's almost been a constant revolving door right what are we what do we do if we have full capacity right? what do we do if we have limited fans what do we do if we have no fans you know um and watching some of the teams uh that have had you know limited fans throughout the year um it certainly has helped us um because we're able to learn and lean on them and eventually button up our plan for whatever scenario is thrown our way uh, we can't predict what will happen with this virus, but we know that we will be ready to go with whatever scenario ends up presenting itself. Looking back at 2020, at what point did you guys know this is going to be more of a maintaining relationships year and making, and what was it like selling in a time of a pandemic? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, let me, let me take a, a step back and, and start by saying there have been you know, a lot of people have been devastated, you know, lost their jobs and more importantly, their lives, friends and family. And, and my heart goes out to them. So, you know, wanted to take a, a moment to recognize the people who've been affected adversely by this this virus. Right. It's a terrible, uh, novel coronavirus. And we know more today than we knew one year ago. And, and we'll know more moving forward than we do today. And um, so I'm so thankful that we've been able to get several vaccines into the market and several people have been vaccinated. Um, so thank you to our healthcare professionals and uh, those that are out there on the front lines. Um, you know, shout out to all of you, um, including those involved in making Levi Stadium a vaccination site. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. So switching gears to, you know, I guess remote work is what I would say is, is I don't think I'm, you know, the in the minority here, but I honestly thought, we'd probably be out of the office maybe a few weeks. And at most, you know, we, we ended up realizing that this was a, was bigger than a lot of us anticipated. We're almost at the one year mark, right? So maintaining relationships, um, you know, a ton of outreach. We always take a measured approach to first ensure that, you know, people are okay, right? And the health of their business is stable. And then we always ask the question, is there anything that we can do to support, right? Once we, we, we ensure that these businesses and the, these clients and the relationships that we have, they're okay, um, you know, then we also have a, a job to do, right, from a sales perspective and, and driving new revenue. And so I made the decision very early on to continue our proactive sales outreach uh, in part because I didn't know what an on-ramp period would look like when we returned to the office. And as a sales team, uh, we've been very intentional in our approach. And what I mean by that is we focus on specific categories and industries. And the ones that have struggled during this pandemic, um, you know, you think of areas like retail, restaurants, hospitality, entertainment. You know, we typically aren't working with uh, those industries. And with the coronavirus, uh, though we're going through a terrible pandemic, there are several industries that are thriving, right? Such as tech, um, cybersecurity, civil, civil engineering, some areas of construction. And we've had a laser focus on specifically targeting these categories that have been very successful. And the thing, again, this, the Bay Area market is very unique. And specifically, there are many companies that are used to working remotely. So our approach really hasn't changed much outside of doing things virtually. 
So typically, you know, a salesperson will contact a client or a company by phone uh, or email to hopefully set a meeting. And from the meeting, you know, we'll set a secondary meeting to share a proposal or presentation virtually. And because of the virtual space, we've actually been able to set and conduct more meetings uh, than we ever have. And so if anything positive has come out of a very terrible time, it's, uh, you know, we've been able to get very strong at this process and the results have shown. Uh, the other thing, which I think is even more important, um, is we've done a lot of team building sessions, right, to ensure everyone is good. All right, the sessions have obviously been remote, um, but they've been incredible. And, you know, we've, we've done things where, you know, members of the staff are, are doing show and tell, right? Several people have gotten new puppies, and so they'll throw up their puppies on Zoom. We've had, you know, cooking and baking classes. And anybody who knows me knows I can't cook to save my life. So those have been very helpful for me. Uh, someone made donuts. We had, you know, someone make their infamous Brussels sprouts. We've done book reviews. We've had, you know, tough conversations around social justice and racial equality and have gotten much closer uh, as a team. Sorry, I want to go back to the donuts. Did you guys fry them, air fry them, bake them? How were those made? They were they were fried, yeah. And did you do a vat of oil in your apartment? Uh, so I, I, I actually, I, I live in a house, right? It's a, it's a pretty big house. I'm, I'm fortunate um, in terms of where I live, but I, I didn't cook the donuts. You know, uh, Alexis uh, Spelliotis on our team, she, she cooked the donuts at her place. And uh, we all got to sit, sit in and just watch. And uh, she shared the recipe. And again, I, I wouldn't try donuts <laughs> because I, I'm, I, again, I'm a terrible cooker, baker, you name it. For work from home, again, we're going into almost a year now. What are your must-haves? Do you have, like, have you set up a workspace? If you could look, if you could tell yourself a year ago what you would need, what would those things be? Yeah, um, so I, I've got um, an office here uh, with a, a nice desk, but I, I rarely ever use that desk. Um, I, you know, I'm going <laughs> to share probably an embarrassing story or secret, but I have an ironing board and a stand on top of my ironing board, which is my stand-up desk. Nice. And, <laughs> Yeah, in the office, uh, you know, I, I was never kind of a big fan of the standing desk. I was like, oh, I'll just sit. And I realized that I need to get up and I need to be a lot more active. And, you know, the, the crazy thing is, yeah, you know, my routine is I get up every morning, right? When I was going down to, to Levi Stadium, I live in the city of San Francisco. I was up uh, between 5 and 5.30 and, and I was on the road and out the door by 5.30 at the latest. You know, we were fortunate to have, you know, a gym with a trainer that would work us out at our Empower Gym. Shout out to Muhammad. And uh, I would I would work out at 6.30 a.m. Uh, you know, I'd eat breakfast in our, or I'd get cleaned up, eat breakfast in our cafeteria and then go to work. Uh, now, I'm happy to say I don't get up between 5 and 5.30, but I'm, I'm always up between 6 and 6.30. And I, I work out. Um, at my place. And then, you know, I have breakfast and then I start my day. And uh, my day starts with, uh, you know, opening up my laptop and, and you know, using my makeshift uh, stand-up desk. And I think the thing that I always uh, talk to the staff about is, is there's a saying that I have is, is plan your work and work your plan. And if they, if any of them are going to be tuning into this, they'll probably laugh because I say plan your work and they re back work your plan and it's really about having a game plan and, and taking each day as it comes and you know if, if you go through the motions and you know what you have to do you have your marching orders you're just going to kind of let the day come to you right so at the end of every work day i pretty much plan out what items i need to accomplish the next day so i can go in and execute my plan and i think it's no different working remotely right so remotely i have you know, a lot more uh, time because I'm not spending as much time on the road. So my goal is to, to get in, knock off all the things that the, the 
items that I absolutely have to get done in each day and then focus on the other areas of the business or the staff and things that I need to do in order to make sure that we're successful at driving revenue. I don't think anyone will disagree with me if I say that you've had a very successful career in sports and sales. Do you have any tips and tricks for people that want to get into that field? Yes, absolutely. I'm going back to it again. Plan your work and work your plan. Again, if anybody from the sales team is listening, they're going to get a laugh. (laughs) Uh, Basically, you know, again, what it means is, uh, you know, matching, um, you know, you have your marching orders in in terms of what you need to accomplish and putting together a game plan is very important. Um, But the advice that I have for uh, people who are looking to break into sales is probably three steps. So one, uh, network, right? Networking to those in the industry at all levels, right? Entry level through executive leadership. And you can get contacts uh, so much uh, more easier today uh, than you could uh, back when I was breaking into the industry. But it's probably easiest through LinkedIn unless you have a direct connection from somebody who can, who can put you in contact with someone. Uh, and people uh, typically respond via LinkedIn. And if you're reaching out to an executive, they, you know, they manage their own LinkedIn account. Right. And networking is establishing a connection that you hope grows into a relationship. So it's a two way street. Uh, if you connect with someone, you know, have a good conversation. And the next time you reach out to that person again and it's about you, you know, wanting a job, that's probably not the greatest look because they can say, hey, you know, if, if they are speaking to a hiring manager, I've had a conversation with this individual, but I don't really know them. You know, how much more powerful is it if I can say, hey, I know this person and we we have monthly catch ups and here's what I know about them. So stay in touch. So networking is one. Two is uh, don't be too big to take on a role outside of the big five sports. Right. So most people want to work in the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, NHL or MLS. Uh, not many people want to work in, you know, minor league baseball or arena football like I did for a year or the NBA, you know, G League. But you can gain valuable knowledge and experience in many cases, uh, get so much more exposure to various departments within that organization because they typically have smaller staffs and uh, there's a lot of cross-departmental collaboration. So if someone is successful selling in any of those leagues, it will certainly set them up for success selling in the big five, especially if it's an entry or mid-level role. And then the third piece of advice I would give someone is you may have to move out of state, right? I think several of us have heard stories about, you know, people who are just breaking into the industry and maybe eating PB&J or a cup of noodles and Having not having much and just barely being able to to pay the bills. But, um, you know, one of my sayings is short term pain equals long term gain. And if you can stick to your game plan, you're ultimately going to have success. Do you have a tip for a a cold LinkedIn open that you would respond to? Yes, I would say you always want to be unique and obviously scroll through somebody's LinkedIn. And if you can find a connection point, uh, maybe you went to the same school, right? Maybe you know somebody who works uh, in the industry or in their space or even at their job. So you always want to try and find some connection point. Uh, and that is probably the best way to 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 make a connection. Uh, and then the other thing I would say, and maybe this is just from my sales background, is if they don't respond the first time, email them again, right? If they don't respond on the second time, send them another note, right? It, it might take two or three, you know, messages before they respond, but I guarantee you, if you continue to to reach out to them. They're going to respond one way or another. And I think, you know, more likely than not, you're going to get a favorable response. I think my favorite question I've asked on this podcast, because I've gotten 
a lot of really fascinating answers is about the ominous other duties as assigned bullet point that just tends to pop up on job listings. Have you found in your time with the 49ers that you've done something that you just weren't expecting? Oh man. Yeah. There's, there's probably a couple of things. Um, you know, one of them is probably the weekly one-on-ones that I have with, um, with staff. And what I have them do is create an agenda, right? So it's completely their agenda. You know, as, as leaders, you often set the agenda and you give feedback, but it's important to hear from people on the front lines. And so a lot of the conversations at times um, end up becoming personal conversations during those one-on-ones. Uh, you know, we've talked about everything too, from career growth to how to be a better seller, uh, financial advice. You know, I'm heavily involved in the stock market or, you know, how to build an emergency fund, um, sports. And some seem to just love to talk and know more about my personal life, which <laughs> they find interesting, but I think is pretty boring. Um, so, so, so that's one, right. You know, just kind of the personal conversations that we have with, with our one-on-ones. And then, you know, on a more serious tone, being a role model or sitting in a leadership role for people of color, right. You know, being a black male and in my role, a revenue role, there aren't many people who look like me and the higher you go up the corporate ladder, the less you are to see people of color. And I've had, you know, a black employee come to me and say, I've never had a black manager. And that actually holds a lot of weight and puts things in perspective because I can relate, you know, because neither have I, right? And the point I want to make is being able to relate and let those who are coming, you know, after me know that there is an opportunity for people of color to grow if you put together a game plan and execute. Um, you know, most people of color, you know, have to be the best in their field and there are very few exceptions. So again, I, those, those personal conversations that, you know, lead to either just, you know, growth or life experiences, um, weren't things that I thought I would be doing in this role. I, I wanted to finish it by talking about 49ers build last off season, you spearheaded the creation of the ERG, 49ers Build. Can you talk about what that is and it, the impact you guys have had in almost a year now? Yeah, so uh, Build is our, our Black ERG. Um, it sounds for uh, Black U- Unity and Leadership and Development. And, you know, it's, it basically started after the murder of, of George Floyd. I reached out to a lot of the... Uh, Black employees um, within the organization via calls and text. And, you know, we decided to hop on a Zoom and we just wanted to check in on one another. And, you know, from there we said, hey, you know what, let's let's get formal and let's create an ERG. And, you know, I, I'd say you know, we're just past seven months now. And I think that you know, the, the amazing thing about, you know, some of the initiatives that we've been able to accomplish and just grow together as a community has been great because there are a lot of things that affect us, um, not only externally, but affect us internally. And having a safe space to lean on one another has been, you know, invaluable. And I wouldn't trade this experience for anything. And, you know, now that we have this, you know, community to lean on, uh, and also bubble up ideas and feedback through our lens on how we can, you know, further push, uh, you know, our objectives internally uh, and then uh, externally. You know, I always say my philosophy is is don't complain about a problem unless you have a solution. And Build has been able to uh, a way to help provide several solutions. And I'm so proud of all my Build family and, and the things that we've been able to accomplish. Uh, you know, leading town hall discussions around racial equality, providing members of our organization with, uh, you know, history, books, documentaries, our personal experiences for them to learn from, 
you know, working in tangent with the other ERGs in Women's Connect, you know, Latinx, AAPI, uh, to share what we, you know, we're calling the Know Your Ballot Initiative and to educate members of the organization on the California ballot measures and propositions. Uh, the fundraiser that we have going to support nonprofits, um, you know, for the month of, of, of February, you know, our show of support for black owned businesses and countless other initiatives um, have been, you know, amazing. And so I think, you know, one of the questions I get a lot to around build is, you know, how, what's the org structure, you know, who, who's the chairman, who's the leader? We don't have a an org structure. We're a flat organization, and that every member within Build has an opportunity to, you know, put forth an initiative that we ultimately are looking to support. And we've got a really cool thing that I call our um, our dot system. It's a voting system in which you know if there are three or four things that we want to put on the docket, everybody can come in and, and vote. And then we say, okay, here's, you know, what, what won. And then we all get behind it, right? We all get behind these, these efforts. And so to be able to work in collaboration and, you know, be a part of something that was birthed through, you know, a traumatic time has been, uh, has been great. So really excited about it. Um, you know, we've got, uh, we're in the month of February now. We've got, a few more weeks to go with our fundraising challenge. And it's been great to see how many people within the organization have stepped up and gotten behind this. When Jenny Luke was on the podcast, we talked about why having employee resource groups are a benefit to an organization. After the last year we've had and the conversations that it has created, do you think ERGs will become more commonplace in business? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. You know, a lot of ERGs are about, you know, diversity and not only in race and ethnicity, but in thought. Right. And uh, diversity has always been top of mind for me, even more so when I got into a leadership role. You know, being a person of color and specifically a black male. Um, and then you think about the, the black females, which is one of the most underrepresented groups within any working organization. Right. And the higher you move up in your career, the less you see people that look like you and companies and organizations that are more diverse at all levels, not just entry level or management level. Uh, I'm talking senior executives and above do better in countless areas like advancement, company growth, culture, you know, McKinsey and Company, the leading and what I would call the legendary consulting firm has done countless studies on this. And you know, there was an article I read, it was titled Why Diversity Matters. And, you know, more diverse companies have the advantage when it comes to winning top talent and improves employee satisfaction and decision making. Um, they're also likely to enhance the level of competitive advantage for companies that can attract and retain diverse talent. And diverse leadership teams are given the edge with talent pipelines, right? Attracting, developing, mentoring, sponsoring, and retaining at all levels of the organization. And, you know, I'm, I'm not breaking any news here, but it just so happens that the overwhelming majority of high-level decision makers within a lot of organizations are, are white men. And if they choose to get involved in societal issues around racism, systemic oppression, social injustice, great, great, that's awesome. But if they communicate their intentions to help move their organization or country forward, you know, who are they leaning on, right? And so often, you know, people in decision-making roles lean on their life experiences or their circle. So their frame of reference sometimes plays an outsized role in planning. And it's very difficult in these instances to cover your blind spots and ultimately grow as an organization. And these societal issues you know, that are going on in the world don't just affect or touch those that you see on TV or social media or wherever you consume your news content. Those issues hit home and affect us all, especially the black and brown community. And what ends up happening is 
they lean on their external circle of friends, right, and mentors, and they circle up and they may say things like, you know, are you getting the support that you need from your organization or company? And uh, a lot of, you know, people of color, you know, keep these things internal. And how often does that work out? So, you know, my advice, uh, you know, for those who are getting into this space would be you need to lean on your underrepresented groups if you're planning to do this. Uh, but the first thing is is to ensure that, you know, everybody is okay, right? Uh, as my, my mom would say, you shouldn't be inviting anybody over to your house or to your room if it isn't clean, right? So the second thing I would say is, is truly work on, you know, diversity efforts and do not take a Band-Aid approach, meaning you have to have the support structures in place. You need to ensure you're setting yourself up for success in this space. You've been, which is crazy to say, with the organization for over a decade, have you seen representation of Black and other minority groups change during that time? And in the long term, do you see a – when we went to the Super Bowl, they asked Denise DeBartolo York if she ever thought there would be a female NFL commissioner. Do you think – in 10 years from now, we'll see a more represented NFL? Yeah, I mean, look at our country, right? We have the uh, first um, African-American and Asian vice president, which is crazy to think. And then, you know, prior to that, we had the first um, African-American, you know, president. And so Kamala Harris is obviously VP and then Barack Obama. So that that speaks volumes. And I think that stuff will continue to trickle down, um, you know, to answer your question in regards to diversity with our organization. Yes, it's, it's crazy to, to think that I've been with the team for over a decade. And <laughs> after, you know, two or three years, you start saying season. So I just wrapped my, my 12th season. And uh, yes, I've seen our diversity numbers increase since I started. But our organization has also grown much larger since I started, right? In 2009, we probably had 100, 150 full-time employees. Now we're over 350. And although the numbers are ticking up, it's been a slow process. And hopefully we'll continue to get better in this space. Um, But I I will say uh, we've done a much better job on the gender side, specifically women, right, than all other buckets. And that's a very good sign at, at progress. And I think that, you know, it's, it's important, right, to have someone who is uh, a professional in this space to help, right? And if, if I or our build ERG says, hey, we want to increase Black representation and we want to offer up a couple of solutions, right, we know we're not the experts um, in this space. So being able to lean on someone who can help assist us with their knowledge and most importantly, uh data is, is critical. And so to answer your question, yes, I think anything is possible. I think we can see a, a female con- commissioner. I think we can see people of, of color in, in those roles. Um, but again, it's, it's, it's a slow process. It's going to take time, um, but there are more than enough qualified candidates out there. And hopefully, you know, um, you know we're both around to, to, to see it when it does happen. Yes, that's That's the goal. Nana, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I know you're always incredibly busy and in demand, so I do really appreciate your time. Yeah, Haley, thank you so much for the time. You know, really enjoy doing your podcast and keep crushing it in this space.